This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Today, we continue our study of this glorious letter written to the Ephesian church. We find ourselves in chapter 3, the first 13 verses. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 3, let me begin at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the previous passage, the author helped the Ephesians to discover their real identity. You may recall that Paul told the church, you are citizens of God's kingdom. You are family members of God's household. You are bricks in God's temple. And now the apostle turns to the man in the mirror and he identifies himself in Christ. There are many phrases that he could have used to describe himself and define himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in our 13 verses, it seems that he uses three phrases. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ, verse 1. I am a steward of God's grace, verse 2. I am a servant of this gospel, verse 7. He begins, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ. This is the first time that his incarceration is ever mentioned in the Ephesian correspondence. Most people believe that Paul wrote this Ephesian letter when he was imprisoned in Rome. His journey to get to Rome was adventurous, to say the least. He was arrested in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, for it was rumored that he had taken a 
Gentile Ephesian believer by the name of Trophimus into the restricted area that was forbidden for Gentiles to go there at the temple complex. The religious leaders arrested Paul not by facts, but merely by speculation. They believed the rumor. They arrested him. He stood before the Sanhedrin. And then the apostles stood before the Roman governor named Felix. Later, his successor Festus. He even stood in front of King Agrippa. And because of his dual citizenship, he claimed his Roman identity. And because of that, he had the right to stand before Caesar. Yet before Paul could ever make his way to Italy, he experienced a storm on the sea. He was shipwrecked and he was snake bitten. Most believe that he was incarcerated uh, these five years. The first two years in Caesarea, the last three years under house arrest in Rome. Let me ask you this morning, if that story was your story, would there be any place in that story where you say enough is enough? Would there be any place where you would want to bail on Jesus? Maybe it's one of the five court dates. Maybe it's being shipwrecked. Maybe it's experiencing a torrential downpour at sea. Maybe it's when you were snake bitten. Not too many people like any of that. Maybe it was at some point along the way where you would have said, where is the nearest exit ramp so I can get off of this crazy highway called life with Jesus? Is there anybody here at some point would want to bail on Jesus if that story was your story? Let's just be honest. Following Jesus is not always easy. Sometimes it is rather difficult, downright hard, and suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. Not just that Christians suffer, but all people suffer. Suffering is part and parcel with our human existence. And sometimes it's helpful for us to know what we're suffering and why we are suffering it because it can give us some understanding and insight of what we're going through. Certainly there are umpteen reasons of why people suffer. Let me mention a handful of them. Sometimes we suffer because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We simply suffer because we have original sin. Sin that was introduced in the Garden of Eden, it touched and tainted everything in all of existence. It consumes every generation, never skipping one generation. So we get sick. Sometimes we develop cancer. The people that we love die. We live in a broken world with broken people. Why is that? Because all of us are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Sometimes we suffer And it is consequential. For you do realize that choices bear consequences. Repeatedly in the Bible, it says God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Sometimes we suffer just because we've made some really bad choices. Let it be known that grace covers all of our sin, but it never removes consequences. Oh, how I wish it was different. Wouldn't it be great if the grace of God not only removed sin, but also eradicated consequences? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not the way God set it up. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. It will wipe away every sin, every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, under the blood of Christ. But you still carry consequences for choices. Sometimes we suffer, and it's consequential because choices bear consequences. 
Sometimes we suffer vicariously. What I mean by that is that the world might not necessarily hate you, but they absolutely hate the Jesus living in you. And so you suffer vicariously. They're really persecuting Jesus, but they are persecuting you. They're really ridiculing your Jesus, but they're ridiculing you. They're really making fun of Jesus, but they're making fun of you. Really, they're making, trying to make life tough on Jesus, but they're really trying to make life tough on you. Sometimes they're not hating on you. Sometimes they're just hating on your Jesus. So sometimes you suffer vicariously. You're persecuted because the world first persecuted Jesus. And if you identify with him, suffering of that sort is inevitable. Oh, sometimes we suffer and it is testimonial. God allows us to go through certain circumstances and situations to give us a greater platform so that we can speak to others about the goodness and greatness of God. That if you did not go through that particular set of circumstances, then you would not have the audience to which to speak. You would not gain the influence where other people would flock to you and want to know how you got through what you just got through. For you and I both know that some great ministry is born out of deep affliction. So sometimes we go through things to give testimony of who God is and how great he is. But other times we suffer because it's mysterious. That's not just a catchphrase. It's not just a I don't know what else to say. No, really, sometimes we don't know why we're going through suffering. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. We know that God does all things well, but we just don't quite know why we're having to go through this suffering. In a practical way, what do those five examples look like? Well, it could be that uh, you're suffering simply because your lovely spouse of some 47 years passed away because of natural causes. And oh, how you grieve because you miss that person. And all of that takes place simply because you and your wife, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And sometimes you suffer grief-stricken experiences simply because we're broken people living in a broken world. Other times you may lose a friendship because you got caught in a lie. You lied, you lied about them, you lied to them, and it's too devastating. They can't overcome it. And so the relationship is dissolved. It is severed because you got caught in a lie. Sometimes choices bear consequences. Then there are other times that maybe you suffer because the boss reprimands you, calls you in and calls you on the carpet because... You boldly shared the gospel at the workplace with a coworker, and it was overheard by another person who was offended by what you had to say and that person turned you in and the boss had to call you in to be reprimanded. All you were doing, you were just boldly sharing the gospel in the workplace. But that's taboo in our culture. So you are persecuted, not so much because your company hates you, but they just don't like the Jesus that you're talking about. Maybe you're suffering because you just learned that your five-year-old grandson has a brain tumor. 
And the doctors believe that it's cancerous. You don't know how you're going to make it. You don't know what the end result's going to be. Yet through it all, you're going to be able to bear some testimony of the goodness and greatness of God, regardless of how it turns out. And you'll be shocked and surprised the number of people that will want to talk to you about your experience, about how you coped and how you dealt with it and what you did with it as you were walking through that deep, dark valley of the shadow of death. Because you're suffering to give a testimony. But then you have some things that are just downright mysterious. It's always hard for me to answer the woman who comes in and she says, just the other day, my husband came home and said he does not love me anymore. And there's another woman. And he turned around and walked away, leaving me alone to raise our three children all under the age of seven. Pastor, why did he do that? There are some things I can say, some real things I want to say to that man, but it doesn't help that woman in that moment. And sometimes we wonder, why do we have to go through the suffering that we have to go through? Sometimes it helps to know what type of suffering we're experiencing so that we know what God is up to in the midst of the suffering because suffering is part and parcel with the human condition and it is part of our existence as followers of Christ. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear what I'm about to say. Suffering does not define your identity, but your identity gets you through the suffering. Let me say that again. Suffering does not define your identity. But your identity will help get you through the suffering. Because one of the great identity thefts in the church is when suffering comes at us, the great temptation is that the suffering will consume us, dominate us, dictate us, and define who we are. So that all of life is bound up by the suffering that we have to experience. So that we know ourselves through the suffering. So we know other people by what they suffer. And it's very tempting to only see each other and see yourself through the suffering that you have to endure but my friend the suffering that you experience it does not define your identity your identity brings you through the suffering if Paul was defined by suffering he would have written I am a prisoner of Caesar he would have written I am a prisoner of the Roman government he would have written, I am a prisoner of just some very bad luck. But he doesn't write any of that. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am property of Christ. I am defined not by my circumstances, but my Christ. I am defined not by my suffering, but my Savior. I am identified not by my mishaps, but my Messiah. I am a prisoner of Christ. So I am his property. He is in charge of my life. He is the one that confines me. I'm not confined by my chaos. I'm confined by the Christ who loved me and died for me. I am surrounded by him. Oftentimes we think of prisoner as something negative yet Paul paints it in a very optimistic light when he looks around and he says I'm not defined by these chains as I'm chained to a Roman soldier I am I am a, I, I break loose of these chains I am defined by Christ I am a prisoner of Christ 
So Paul did not allow his circumstances, his suffering, his setback to define him because his identity was in Christ. Because of that, and only because of that, he could proclaim, I am a prisoner of Christ. So he was going to allow his suffering to be used to help others know and grow in Christ. Friend, can I ask you, do you allow your suffering to help other people know and grow in Christ? Do you allow your suffering, your setback, your agony, your heartbreak, do you allow it to be seen through the lens and prism of Calvary and do you allow it to to help others to know and grow in Christ. I've told you before about my friend Adam. He's a fellow preacher. He's in Texas these days. He had a young son that was diagnosed with cancer. He went with his son to every treatment. He watched his son. And through a very tearful, painful experience, Adam came to this conclusion. I would not choose this. But God, if you choose this for me and for my son and for my family, then let it be known, I choose you. What a bold statement. I would not choose this. It's okay to say your suffering stinks. It's okay to say you've had enough to hear with your tragedy. It's okay to say, you know what? I don't have a smile on my face and it's not going well and I'm really having a bad season of life. That's okay. It's okay to say, I would not choose this. But God, if you choose this for me, let it be known, I will not blast you, I will bless you. Let it be known that if you choose this for me, I choose you. I choose Christ. Only a prisoner of Christ can make such a declaration. Friend, do you use your suffering to help others know and grow in Christ? Your suffering doesn't define you. It doesn't define your identity, but your identity helps you get through the suffering. This is why Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. I am his property. He owns me. I wonder, uh, when did Paul become a prisoner of Christ? I don't think it was sometime in the previous five years. You know, being incarcerated in Caesarea or there under house arrest in Rome. I think Paul became a prisoner of Christ when Jesus knocked Paul off of his high horse on the Damascus road. The bright light shone, the voice of the Lord spoke, and Paul was blinded. Literally knocked off his high horse. And God violently, yet lovingly, invaded his life. And in that moment, I think that Paul would say, I became a prisoner of Christ. You know, every person's testimony ought to be that I met Jesus and he violently, yet lovingly, invaded my life. Because that's exactly how Jesus operates. He violently comes in. You're no longer in charge, he says. I'm in charge. You no longer open the doors. I open the doors. You no longer call the shots. I call the shots. I don't know about you, but that's pretty violent. He violently comes in and says, I'm in charge. Yet he does it very lovingly. He is a friend of sinners. He is compassionate. He adores you. So he violently yet lovingly comes in and says, I'm in charge, you're the prisoner, and I'm taking you captive. 
I can't think of a greater position to be in than for Jesus to be in charge and for me to be his property. So Paul declares, who am I in Christ? I am a prisoner of Christ. Verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. That word administration elsewhere is translated steward. A steward was a manager of the household. Normally, whenever the master went away, he would appoint a steward. Someone who would uh, take care of the daily chores and tasks of the household. Because the steward understood that while the master was away, one day the master's coming back. And when the master comes back, everything in the house must be in order. Paul says, I am a steward of God's grace. I'm a manager of God's house. I know that the master has gone away, but one day he's coming back. Church, you do realize that the master has gone away, but he is coming back one day. And when the master comes, comes back... He needs to find his house in order. He needs to find his people doing their task. He needs to find his church being the church. So the master is away, but he's coming back one day. Paul says, I'm just a steward of God's grace. I am just one who does the bidding of the master because every steward worth his salt would only do what the master told him to do. So Paul says, I'm going to manage to the best of my ability This amazing grace. The grace he defines in our 13 verses by the word mystery. The word mystery is found four times in this passage. We find it in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 6, and in verse 9. That must tell you it's a pretty important word. For Paul to use it four times, it must convey to you as the student of the book, as the follower of Christ, when you come across something four times in a short span of Scripture space, it must tell you this is important. The reason Paul writes it this way is to uh, underline it, italicize it, make it bold. So you must know, what is this mystery? For most of us, a mystery is a riddle that needs to be unraveled. It is a problem that needs to be solved. It's a conclusion that needs to be logically deduced. I understand all those definitions of mystery. That is how we understand it in our American culture. But that understanding is not biblical mystery. Biblical mystery literally means something that is shrouded that's about to be unveiled. Something that is draped in mystery, draped and shrouded in mystery, but it's about to be unveiled. And every time in biblical mystery, every time when that word mystery is used throughout the Bible, you don't come to its conclusion by logical human means. It must be accompanied by revelation of the Holy Spirit so that normally, humanly, logically, it doesn't make sense. But the mystery only makes sense when the Holy Spirit gives revelation. It's not examination. You're not just Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out the mystery. No, unless the Spirit of God gives inspiration, illumination, revelation, then you and I got no shot of knowing the mystery of God. So this mystery is is simply stated. It is divine truth that's given through revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's divine truth that's given through revelation of the Holy Spirit. 
So what is this mystery? Paul comes right out and says it in verse 6. Here's the mystery. That Gentiles are together in the people of God with Israel. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Boy, we don't understand this. I told you last week that you and I cannot overestimate the level of mutual, mutual hatred and division between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Literally, they hated each other. And Paul says, this great mystery is that you have been saved. The great mystery is that you have been grafted in to the tree of God. The great mystery is that God has put Jew and Gentile together to be his people. This is the great mystery. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he says it in an even more succinct way. He said, here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. How in the world can the sovereign Savior of the universe take up residence in my sinful, frail condition? Christ in me? Christ in me? Christ in me? How is that even possible? And I'm, I'm not even talking about you yet. I mean, Christ in you and Christ in you. <laughs> oh my goodness, Christ in you? Are you kidding me? Right? I mean, we come to this conclusion, wow, this makes no sense. How can a sovereign God... Who, how can the, the, the righteous redeemer take up residence in us? Christ in us, the hope of glory? Now that's mysterious. And the only way you come to this conclusion is by revelation of the Spirit of God. There's been more than one theologian who has said, you know, the Old Testament did not see the church coming. It just was so foreign to them. They, they didn't even see it on the horizon. They couldn't even fathom the idea that Gentiles would be included in the people of God. So in the Old Testament, they'll say, you don't even find the church. And I want to disagree with them on this point. Just because they didn't see it doesn't mean it wasn't there. The church has always existed. Because God is no respecter of persons. He does not show favoritism. But he accepts anyone from any nation who fears him and does what is right. That's the way God has always operated. So you look back all throughout the Old Testament and you see examples of the church. The church being believing Israel and believing Gentiles. Coming together, being together as one body of Christ. It's as early as Genesis chapter 12. Where God gives the promise to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, through your seed, singular, not plural, through your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. Now, all nations have to include some pagan Gentile nations, right? All nations have to include all nations, right? Genesis 12 says, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. In Isaiah the prophet who lived some 700 years before the coming of Christ, he writes that on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner over all the peoples and all the nations will rally to him. All the nations, not just Israel, all the nations will come and rally to the root of Jesse, the descendant of David's household. 
And then you get to Revelation chapter 7. I know that's a New Testament book, but you get to the very end and you see the fulfillment of this promise in Revelation 7. There's a crowd that's too numerous to count. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lamb. And who are they? They're members of every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. Every nation represented worshiping the Lord. So this is being plan A. God has never had a plan B. Plan A has always been for people to come to him only through the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Those in the Old Testament were looking forward to Calvary. We are looking back into Calvary. All of us looking into the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. This has always been the heartbeat of God. This is a mystery. You don't come to this through logical deduction. You don't come to this through human reason. In fact, in some ways, this makes absolutely no sense unless the Spirit of God has opened up your eyes unto His understanding. Unless the Holy Spirit has given you revelation to tell you that you're included in God's family, this doesn't make any sense. But when it does make sense, When you do realize that you are part of the family of God, you pagan Gentile, when you barbarian, when you filthy individual, when I, uh, just as complete sinner, when I'm included in God's family, oh, we've got to be overwhelmed with humility and grace so that we have to confess with Daniel Whittle, who said, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It is only through the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God that this great mystery is made known to you. So this is why we acknowledge that we can't reason anybody into heaven. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that we don't try to convince people of their sin and their need for the Lord. No, we continue to do that. But ultimately, the burden is not on us. The burden's on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does His work. And i got to be honest with you, that really takes a load off of me because I know that the Spirit of God can do His work. I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would bet on the Spirit of God every day and twice on Sunday. But don't start that rumor. I'm a Baptist preacher, so I'm not a betting man. But I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that he can do what he wants to accomplish. So he sets forth to accomplish the mystery. And who are we? We're just stewards of the mystery. We're just stewards of this. We're we're just managers of this. We, We just... What has been given to us, we dispense to others. God's been gracious to you. You're gracious to other people. If God has shown you salvation, then you share that salvation with others. Whatever you've received, you give unto others. We're just a conduit. We're just a steward. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. I am a steward of God's mystery, his grace. But third, verse 7, I am a servant of this gospel. You expect to find the word doulos. The word doulos means bond, servant, or slave. But you don't find the word doulos. You find diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Diakonos is a compound Greek word, dia meaning through, konos meaning dirt. So we say that a deacon is someone who goes through the dirt, that he is to have uh, uh, dirty feet. (laughs) It's not that we look around for the guys who have the ugliest feet and say, you'd be a great deacon. But we say, no, because a deacon is somebody who goes through the dirt to serve so that somebody who rolls up his sleeves is ready to work in the kingdom of God. 
Paul says, this is who I am in Christ. I am a servant of this gospel. Not just any gospel, but this gospel. The word gospel is euangelion. It means good news. And before you know the good news, you got to know the bad news. And there's no letter in the New Testament that portrays more accurately the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your sin, but God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you've been saved. None of yourselves It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. If God wanted to set it up where you can earn your way into, into heaven, he would have done it that way. But there are two problems. Number one, if he set it up that way, you would brag about it. And secondly, you and I cannot do enough good to be perfect and holy in God's sight. So the Lord said, there's no way you can do it. I'm not going to set you up for failure. I'll just give you salvation. That's grace. So all of this is because of the Lord. So Paul says, I am a servant of this gospel. I'm a servant of this gospel. Paul says, I, I can't imagine anyone more unlikely than me to do this. I can imagine. I mean, I, I persecuted the people of God, Paul will, Paul will write later. God has given me a tremendous grace that, that he wants me to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to Gentiles, to other people, and to try my best to make it clear unto them. And this is what the Lord wants out of his church to have manifold wisdom of God to be preached to the heavenlies. What does that mean? It means that we are shouting all the way to heaven. Because we even let the angels know how to be saved. We even know the angels know how good God is. We even know the angels know. So we want everybody else to hear and even the angels to hear us too. Because we make known this gospel. Paul will say to his son of the ministry, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I can echo that statement. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And before you think, well, pastor, you're just trying to be humble or glib. No, I'm trying to be honest. I don't know all your sin. I know all my sin. I, I don't know your sin. The only sin I know of you is what you tell me. And I just got a hunch that you don't tell me the worst parts. I mean, I, when you come in and tell me your sin, I'm just kind of banking on the fact that you probably didn't tell me the worst sin. And so I don't know. I don't know your sin. But I do know mine. I know everything that I've done. I know everything that I've thought. I know every attitude that I've had. I know it all. And I can honestly say I am the chief of all sinners that I know. But all my sin is under the blood of Christ. Every dirty deed under the blood. Every foul word under the blood. Every ungodly thought under the blood. Every sin of omission or commission under the blood. 
Everything, past, present, and future, and all of my sins, all of your sins, under the blood of Christ. It's not enough for Jesus to die just for some of our sins, because even one sin will send us to a deserving hell. Yet Jesus died for all of our sins, so what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for making me a servant of this gospel. So who are you in Christ? Paul will say, I am a prisoner of Christ. I'm a steward of God's grace. I am a servant of this gospel. So he concludes verses 12 and 13. In him and in faith in him, you can approach God with freedom and confidence. He has in the back of his mind the reality that... uh, Only the high priest could enter the most holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they went so fearfully that they would wrap a rope around their waist just in case by seeing the sheer holiness of God they would drop dead. And if the people outside heard a thud, then they would just pull the guy out by the rope. And Paul says because of what Christ has done for us, we can approach God with confidence and freedom. There's no fear of being rejected by God because of what Christ has done. So Paul says to the church, do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Don't be discouraged because of your suffering. Don't be discouraged because of circumstances in life. Why? Because know who you are in Christ. This is who you are. You are because of the work of the Lord. You're a prisoner of Christ. You are a steward, a manager of God's grace. You are a servant of this gospel. Therefore, you're not defined by your circumstances and your chaos and your surrounding and your suffering. You're defined by Christ. And though you were dead, you've been made alive. Because God is rich in mercy, He's made you alive. In Christ Jesus, my Lord. So my friend, let me be very clear. Today, if your identity is not in Christ, today there can be a change that will be eternal. You come when we sing. You take one of the ministers by the hand and you say, I need that Jesus over me, in me, through me. Today can be the day of your salvation. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're a believer in God. But maybe you've just forgotten your identity. You've forgotten just how good God is. And maybe there's been a moment this past week, this past month, when you have defined yourself because of your sickness or your suffering or your tragedy or your turmoil. You're defined by Christ.
So maybe you're a believer and you just need to come and just pray until the Lord cast all your cares upon him once you know the altar's open. As God's Spirit reveals the mystery, you respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that we are your prisoners, your property. We're your stewards. We're your servants. Father, have your way in this invitation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.